Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 14. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Cabeza de Vaca, part three. We will no longer refer to the Narvaez expedition in the title of the podcast, because as you know, if you listen to episode 13, in late November 1528, shiz got seriously real. It could no longer be said that there was a Narvaez expedition. Panfilo de Narvaez himself was dead on a raft adrift with two other corpses in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, and his original landing party at Tampa Bay in April of that year had dwindled from 300 men and 42 horses to two rafts of 40 or so starving men, each crew unaware of the other, cast away on opposite sides of a barrier island near Galveston on the Texas Gulf Coast. Almost eight years would elapse before the final four of these roughly 80 wretches would reconnect with the bleeding edge of Spanish civil authority on the Pacific coast of Mexico. We are recording this episode on March 25th, 2021 in New Orleans. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe and rate us in your podcatcher. Glowing reviews on Apple don't hurt either. And of course, please send your quibbles, substantive corrections, expressions of outrage, and eruptions of enthusiasm to me by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or by commenting on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Among the castaways on Cabeza de Vaca's raft was a still strong young man, Lope de Oviedo, whom Cabeza de Vaca dispatched to explore the area surrounding their beachhead. About a mile away, he found an unoccupied Indian village. Oviedo took a pot and filled it with fish and headed back down the trail to the beach. Three armed Indians followed him, and when Oviedo got back to the other Spaniards, the trailing Indians stopped at a safe distance and watched. The word was on the Indian street, though, because within half an hour, a hundred men, all armed, had reinforced the first three and now surrounded the Spaniards. This was a fairly crucial moment. It was the conquistador's instinct to bluff and bluster when surrounded by Indians, and many a time it served them well. But Cabeza de Vaca was a survivor, and he knew that a hundred hale and hardy and armed Indian men were not the least bit afraid of 40 cadaverous and mostly unarmed, strange-looking people. And Cabeza de Vaca's honest words We were so scared that they seemed to us to be giants, whether they were or not. We could not even think of defending ourselves, since there were scarcely six men who could even get up from the ground. Cabeza de Vaca approached the Indians hat in hand, so to speak, offering them the usual hawks bells and such to establish goodwill. The Indians gave them arrows in return, which is a sign of friendship and promised to return the next day with food, which they did. Cabeza de Vaca's raft had run into friendly Indians, manifestly different from the Camones, who sort of automatically murdered the starving survivors on the southernmost raft at the end of last week's episode. After a few days, Team Cabeza de Vaca started to regain its strength and began to consider how it might resume its journey down the coast to New Spain. 
They dug the heavy raft out of the sand, saved some edible roots the Indians had given them, and rounded up fresh water for the journey. There is unfortunately no record of the receptacles they used to carry the water, but without those horse-leg canteens at the ready, they probably used Indian containers of some sort. All set then, what could possibly go wrong? Well, the castaways decided to take off their clothes and put them on the raft so that their threads would stay dry while they all got in the water to push the raft out over the breakers. Accomplishing that, they leapt aboard and started paddling to clear the surf. Suddenly, two big waves hit, the first drenching them and sweeping the paddles from their hands, and the second overturning the raft. Five men drowned under the capsized raft. The rest managed to get back to the beach, this time naked as the day they were born and every last thing they owned into the drink. Remember, it was early December and the Little Ice Age was chilling down North America as in Europe. Galveston can be cold even now. Low temperatures in December, average in the high 40s, and can go much lower. But the late 1520s were probably much colder. Our heroes were in trouble. When the Indians returned at sunset with the usual meals on wheels, they were shocked to see the Christians naked, huddled around a meager fire built from still smoldering embers, and the unburied bodies of the men who had drowned. Then we had a moment of which modern anthropologists can only dream. In Cabeza de Vaca's words, they felt such great pain and pity at seeing us in such a state that they all began to cry so loudly and sincerely that they could be heard from afar. This went on for more than half an hour. In fact, seeing that these crude and untutored people, who were like brutes, grieved so much for us, caused me and others in my company to suffer more and think more about our misfortune. According to the notes in my version of Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, modern ethnologists who studied other accounts of the now extinct Indians from the Texas Gulf Coast have concluded that weeping in this manner was customary. So contemporary scholarship has validated this first observation of Cabeza de Vaca. Sadly, the origins of the custom or its purpose, if there were any other than the obvious expression of grief, are lost to us today. And now even more desperate straits, which would have seemed almost impossible, Cabeza de Vaca forthrightly asked the Indians to take them in at their village. The Indians agreed to this, still by sign language, and went off to make preparations. The generosity of this small tribe, a few dozen families at most, was remarkable. They returned that night, having built bonfires at intervals between the beach and the village so that the naked Europeans could warm themselves along the way and all but carry the castaways from fire to fire and eventually to their village. There they had prepared a big house with multiple fires inside and a big celebration with dancing and food and undertook to feed the Spanish thereafter. Forty additional mouths to feed was not a trivial burden for a small group of hunter-gatherers, and yet these Indians took them in. After one short digression, which involves the exciting moment when the men from the two rafts come in contact with each other, 
we will come back to these Indians. Shortly after arriving at the village, Cabeza de Vaca saw an Indian with European trinkets. On interrogation by the usual means of gesticulation, Cabeza de Vaca learned that the Indian had obtained them from another group of men just like him elsewhere on the same barrier island. He dispatched two men to look for the others, and they quickly encountered the group from the Durantes Castillo raft headed in their direction. Consider how amazing this must have seemed. These two groups had last seen each other weeks before at the crossing of the Mississippi Delta and somehow landed in opposite sides of the same island after randomly floating hundreds of miles. I know what you're thinking. Yes, the Durantes Castillo team still had their raft. The combined group picked the fittest among them to sail or at least paddle the raft south and bring back help from New Spain. Sadly, that raft broke apart shortly after embarking too, with, as was becoming a habit, all possessions going under the sea. So then plan B, they picked four men who were confident swimmers to schlep down the coast an indeterminate distance. We know it is about 400 miles, but they didn't, to Panuco in New Spain. Predictably, not knowing how to hunt and stuff, or maybe running into hostile Indians, they all died along the way. So now we have something under 80 Europeans wholly dependent on two small tribes of hunter-gatherers. Let's talk a bit about them. The tribes along this stretch of the Texas Gulf Coast and for some distance inland were, in fact, hunter-gatherers rather than settled farmers. Professor Andres Resendez summarizes the relevant aspects of their culture and how it played out during the very cold winter of 1528 and 29. Nothing could have prepared the castaways for the lifestyle they would have to adopt to survive. The Capoques and Hans, those were the two tribes on the island, were fully nomadic peoples. They led a roving life, seldom spending more than a few weeks at any given site. They had but few possessions and lived in simple, semicircular tents that were easily constructed and that provided only minimal protection from the elements. Their simple dwellings, however, belied their extraordinary, sophisticated use of their environment. Their knowledge of the coastal flora and fauna was simply unmatched. They were expert foragers. The Capoques and Hans moved in seasonal, deliberate patterns meant to take advantage of specific food items in a range that was not confined to their island, but also extended into the flat, low-lying coastal prairie on the mainland. Their hunting skills were formidable as well. In Capeza de Vaca's estimation, their hearing and eyesight were so sharp and attuned to even the slightest movement so as to rank among the best in the world. When the two rafts made landfall in November, the Capoques and Hans must have just arrived at the island to spend the winter there. They typically subsisted on fish and roots, which were plentiful at first, but the natives knew well that things would deteriorate steadily, reaching a low point in February when the starchy tubers began to sprout and are no longer edible. All right, now it gets ugly. The winter of 1528-29 was extraordinarily harsh. 
The cold and a series of great storms prevented the Indians from wading into the water to dig up the roots. Fishing became extremely difficult and generally yielded nothing. The houses may have been portable, but they afforded little protection against the inclement weather. Many castaways were unable to survive. Cabeza de Vaca wrote, quote, In a short time of us 80 men who arrived there from both ends of the island, only 15 remained. The Narvaez 300 was down to only 15. We're at a 95% casualty rate after one year. And it will still be seven years before our heroes make it to the Pacific coast of Mexico and run into that Spanish slaving posse. Neighborly as they had been, the Indians would only tolerate freeloaders for so long. Eventually, it always comes down to no work, no food. Professor Resendez describes how the refugees turned into slaves. What had begun as a guest-host relationship between the natives and the Spaniards eventually degenerated into a relationship between masters and slaves. The transition was gradual but unmistakable. No doubt, the castaways did not take long to outlive their initial welcome. The Capokis and Hans had been extraordinarily generous to the marooned explorers, but with the onset of winter, the strangers must have been expected to pull their own weight. The Indians were surely shocked at how useless the foreigners were. The castaways must have been laughably incapable of hunting with bows and arrows, and their fishing skills could not have been much better, as their knowledge of local traps, weirs, and edible fish was minimal. Since the strangers could not be entrusted with manly occupations, they were given women's work. They had to dig for roots, carry firewood, and fetch water. The men would remain on the island as slaves to the natives. Life became so harsh for the survivors that they took the habit of calling the island Miljado, the island of ill fate. For the next six years or so, the castaways' lives revolved around unceasing work. Their chores were deceptively trivial, carrying wood, digging for roots, or fetching water. There was nothing insidious or cruel about these activities, but they were constant as well as physically challenging and often painful. The heavy stumps chafed directly against their bare backs, and the bearers' feet were hurt from walking over summer-hot sand and amidst fierce spiny plants. Cabeza de Vaca's fingers bled constantly from digging roots. The survivors were entirely at the mercy of their masters, the native children mocked the Christians almost daily. According to Capeza de Vaca, any child would give them a good hair-pulling, and for them this was great fun, the greatest pleasure in the world. That was merely juvenile humor. The adults did not hesitate to use violence to obtain compliance. The captives reported being beaten with sticks, slapped in the face, and having their thick beards jerked out. A minor omission, delay, or infraction could bring about severe punishment, even death. Cabeza de Vaca recounts how three Christians were killed only for daring to go from one house to another, and another three who remained alive except to meet the same end. One Spaniard who had committed no infraction at all was killed simply because one Indian woman had a dream of 
I don't know what nonsense, the castaways recall, because in those parts they believe in dreams and kill their own children because of dreams. Undoubtedly, the castaways had become slaves. Now, the enslaved Europeans were not tribal or collective property. They had particular masters among the Kapokes and Hans. It was Cabeza de Vaca's unique misfortune that by the spring of 1529, all the other Spaniards enslaved by his Indians, air quotes there as usual, had died, leaving him without anybody in his immediate group who spoke his language or practiced his religion. Perhaps worse, he learned through his Indian master that 12 of the other Europeans, including Dorantes, Castillo, and Esteban, had left as a group on foot for New Spain. Only Cabeza de Vaca, alone with his group of Indians and two other Spaniards too weak or afraid to leave the island at all, had stayed behind. Then something happened that would turn out to be of transforming significance years down the road. From Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, on that island, they wanted to make us physicians without testing us, or asking for any degrees, because they cure illnesses by blowing on the sick person and cast out the illness with their breath and their hands. So they told us to be useful and do the same. We laughed at the idea, saying they were mocking us and that we did not know how to heal. They in turn deprived us of our food until we did as they ordered. Seeing our reluctance, an Indian told me that I did not know what I was talking about when I said that it was all useless. He knew that even rocks and other things found in the fields have beneficial properties, for he healed and took away pain by passing a hot rock across the stomach. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. I kill me. Continuing on with Cabeza de Vaca. And since, he said, we were powerful men, we were certain to have greater powers and properties. In brief, we were in such need that we had to do it, putting aside our fear that anyone would be punished for it. So they're afraid they'll fail. We did our healing by making the sign of the cross on the sick persons, breathing on them, saying the Lord's Prayer and a Hail Mary over them and asking God our Lord as best we could to heal them and inspire them to treat us well. God our Lord in his mercy deigned to heal all those for whom we prayed. Once we made the sign of the cross on them, they told the others that they were well and healthy. For this reason, they treated us well and refrained from eating to give us food. Eventually, perceived capacity of the Spanish to heal whatever the mind-body-spirit process, would transform the lives of the Spanish and give rise to the first mass religious movement in North American history, nearly as anyone knows. After about a year, Cabeza de Vaca resolved to flee his original group of Indians and join another band from a different tribe, the Charucos, who were then living in a forest on the mainland. Presumably, he got to know these other Indians as he roamed around with the original nomadic island tribe. Regardless, Cabeza de Vaca made his move in late 1529 or early 1530 at some point and took up with the Charucas, who apparently had hostile relations with other tribes in the region. Over the next two years, Cabeza de Vaca carved out a niche as a merchant intermediary between the Charucas and other tribes, 
astutely trading under a de facto intertribal guarantee of safe passage, and occasionally using his freedom to travel to visit the other two Spaniards who'd stayed on the coastal island. In this way, he built up his reputation, was given food by the tribes that hosted him when he visited with his goods to trade, and gained important intelligence about the tribes in the region and the terrain. In the spring or summer of 1532, now almost four years after his arrival in Texas, Cabeza de Vaca finally persuaded the last surviving Spaniard on the island, Lope de Oviedo, the man who had scouted the first Indian village right after the raft made landfall four years before, to leave with him to Panuco, the northernmost outpost in New Spain, roughly the site of modern Veracruz. They worked their way south across four rivers, probably following the path the Durantes Castillo group must have taken in 1529. There they encountered another tribe, the Cavenes, who reported that there were three other Christians living to the south. They further reported that the Indians treated the Christians very badly, killing three of them for their own amusement and slapping them around. This having been demonstrated on poor Lope de Oviedo, he turned tail and made his way back to Malhado, the original island. We do not know what happened to him, but he'd lasted four tough years, so perhaps he lived as a hermit on the coast of Texas until ripe old age. Or maybe he died a few days later, cold and alone, trying to cross back to the island. Either way, Lope de Oviedo had seen his last European face Cabeza de Vaca stuck with the Cavenes, who rotated their way to the banks of a river where there grew many pecan trees, and many bands of Indians gathered to eat the nuts in season. The river's thought to be the Lower Colorado River, which flows through Austin down to Matagorda Bay, although I've seen one source that says it was the Guadalupe, a difference that I concede is interesting only to Texans. In any case... As Cabeza de Vaca approached an Indian dwelling, out of nowhere, Andres Dorantes emerged. It was the fall of 1532, and the two hadn't seen each other for three and a half years. Dorantes took Cabeza de Vaca to see Castillo and Esteban, and they caught up with each other while eating pecans. This is when Cabeza de Vaca learned the fate of the twelve who had left Malhado in the spring of 1529. The short version... Nine of the twelve died by drowning or on account of Indians, leaving only Durantes, Castillo, and Esteban, who threw in the towel and enslaved themselves, as it were, to local Indians, rather than continuing on their journey south. A group called the Iguazas took Castillo and Esteban, and the Mariamas took Durantes. Their convergence, along with the Cavenes and Cabeza de Vaca, was no accident. They all came for the nuts. In the comparing of notes, they learned there would be other such opportunities for convergences, including in the summer, when the same tribes would gather to eat prickly pears in the lower Nueces River Valley, west of Corpus Christi. When the tribes dispersed from the River of the Nuts, Castillo and Esteban left with the Iguazes. Dorantes was with a family of the Miriamas tribe, who took on Cabeza de Vaca as a slave as well. So they had each other now, which was nice. 
Cabeza de Vaca had a lot to say in the way of anthropological observations of the Marianas, and those are rendered with additional scholarship in the notes to various versions of his narrative, and in a land so strange, the epic journey of Cabeza de Vaca by the aforementioned Andres Resendez. Both are great reading if you want to learn more. Regardless, joining Durantes and the Mariamas meant that Cabeza de Vaca had to give up his sweet life as an itinerant trader. So it was back to arduous slaves' work for him. A difficult adjustment. In the long Texas summer, Durantes and Cabeza de Vaca were tasked with keeping the swarms of mosquitoes at bay by tending all night smoky bonfires in a ring around the camp which itself moved every two or three days. Hauling the wood was exhausting, and if they fell asleep, the Indians would wake them by beating them with sticks. In early 1533, now five years after the Narvaez expedition landed in Tampa Bay and four and a half since the rafts hit the beach in Texas, the two tribes traveled to the prickly pear grounds, and the four castaways were together for the summer. Their plan was to escape in September, as the tribes were going their different ways. But without warning, a couple of the tribes broke into conflict over a woman, and the Miriamas and Iguazas dispersed ahead of schedule, separating the castaways again. It would be another year before they would be together again at the prickly pear grounds. So another year before they could plot their escape to Panuco in New Spain. That year, from Mid-1533 to mid-1534, it was very tough on Cabeza de Vaca. Hunger and harsh treatment drove him to escape to other tribes three times, imperiling his chances for meeting up with the other three the following summer. Miraculously, they managed it, though, and in September 1534, now almost six years since they landed in Texas, after a series of lucky encounters and tips from friendly Indians— the final four survivors of the Narvaez landing party gathered under a full moon and headed south, joining a band of friendly Indians known as the Avavaras. This seems like a great place to stop. Thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to the History of the Americans in your podcatcher of choice. Rate the podcast robustly. And if the spirit moves you, please write a review on Apple or wherever you listen. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com.